We look forward to Dave's lesson tonight at 6 o'clock, his continued lesson on the series of Journey Through the Bible. I encourage you to come back to participate in that, that great series of lessons. We're going to pause for several weeks in our series on questions from God. In order to maintain some balance in our study, we'll do several different type of lessons. Our lesson this morning, the greatest man who ever lived. At some point in their history, every nation can boast of what they view as a great leader. Egypt had Pharaoh. Rome had Caesar. France had de Gaulle. Russia had Lenin. China had Mao Zedong. India had Gandhi. Germany had Hitler. Italy had Mussolini. America had Washington. But thanks be to God, Christianity has Jesus Christ. Every religion can boast of a founder or some leader. Buddhism had Gautama. Jainism had Mahavira. Sikhism had Nanak. Zoroastrianism had Zoroaster. Confucianism has Confucius. Islam had Mohammed. The Lutherans had Martin Luther. The Presbyterians had John Calvin. The Methodists had John Wesley. The Mormons had Joseph Smith. Catholicism has the Pope. But thanks be to the good Lord, the church you can read about in the Bible has Jesus Christ. Everything connected with Christ is different from all other things of like nature. Whatever is connected with Christ is unique. It is distinctive. It is one of a kind and there's nothing else just like it. This is true even in regard to common things. Matthew 2 verse 1 informs us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Do you know what the first city was? You know who built it? Most people don't know the answer to that question. There are members of the church that don't know the answer to that question. But the name of the first city was Enoch. The man who built it was Cain. And he named it after his son. Genesis 4.17. George Washington, the first president of the greatest nation the world has ever known. You know what city he was born in? Most other people don't know it either. And I neglected to look it up so I don't know it. <laughs> but he was born in some city somewhere. Unknown to most people in this country 
and most people on earth. From the beginning until now, there have been thousands of great cities, great people born in those cities, events that occurred in those cities. You could be asked question after question about these cities, about the great people born there, about great events down through history that occurred there. And most people would not know the names of those cities. Those people are those events that occurred in those great cities. And yet we remember a small village called Bethlehem. It was not a great city. It was not a place of great commerce. Why do we remember Bethlehem? And we don't know all of these other cities, all the people born there and all the events that occurred there. Because the greatest man who ever lived on earth was born in that little village. Matthew 21, 1 to 9 talks about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, his triumphant entry. Tennessee is known for its beautiful walking horses. Kentucky for its graceful racehorses. Arabia for its elegant stallions. And yet more is known and said about this little donkey than all of these others multiplied many times over. Why is that? Because the greatest man who ever lived on earth, Jesus Christ, rode on that little donkey. From the beginning of time, every age has been characterized by theft. One of the reasons that things are so high, when you go to the grocery store or some other store in order to buy some needed item you have, is because of theft. There are many people that steal from their own employers. There have been stores that have had to close because of theft. We pay for stealing every time we purchase anything. One of the reasons that insurance is so high in regard to items, material items, is because of theft. Stealing is as common as summer's heat and winter's cold. And there's some famous thieves in the Bible. There was a thief in the Old Testament that tragically, because our brethren don't study the Bible like they used to, would not know the name of. Most people in denominationalism do not know the name of this thief. But he's well known to members of the Lord's church. God told Israel when they went to take the city of Jericho, don't you take any of the gold or silver or vessels of iron or brass. They are sanctified and consecrated and they're to go into the Lord's work through the tabernacle and the temple. Don't you take any of these items. If you do so, you're going to bring a curse on this nation. 
Well, the Lord allowed the walls to fall. They took the city. But the text says there was a curse upon the people because someone had taken of those accursed items. And so the following battle, a little city of Ai, some of the leaders went to Joshua and said, look, there's no need to send the whole army. This is just a small little city. Just send two or 3,000 soldiers. So 3,000 went against the city of Ai and 36 of them didn't come home. That meant 36 widows, numbers of orphans, wives that lost their husbands and children that lost their fathers because of what this one thief did. So God said, you bring the nation before me, tribe by tribe, family by family, man by man. I'm going to show you who the guilty party is. And as probably even all the children in this audience know, that man's name was Achan. And Joshua said, you need to confess your wrong. And that man confessed to what he had done. I saw this Babylonian garment, that gold and silver, and I coveted them. And they're under my tent. Sure enough, they went to the tent and there these accursed items had been hidden. And because of what Achan did and the curse he brought upon his own family and the nation, God said, stone, stone them to death. All of them died and they were burned. Achan was a great thief. There's a thief in the New Testament that just about everybody who knows anything about the Bible knows. And that was Judas. But in all probability, there are many, many who do not realize that he was a thief. In John chapter 12, when Jesus was at a meal at the house of Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, and Mary and Martha, Mary brought this expensive ointment and anointed him. Oh, Judah spoke up. Why was this done? Why, it could have been sold and given to the poor. But the text says he didn't say that because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he carried the bag that contained the money that was utilized to take care of the material and physical needs of Christ and those other apostles. A thief. And yet in a religious assembly of Bible believers, you ask, who is the most famous thief of all? And almost everybody would join together in unison and say, the thief on the cross. Someone says, yes, but there were two thieves on that fateful day, one on each side of the Christ. That's true. But we don't talk about the thieves on the cross. And in a religious discussion that raises the question, what must I do to be saved? No one 
says, I want to be saved like the thieves on the cross. Why? Because Jesus made the difference, the greatest man who ever lived, in just one of those thieves' life. Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, and I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. He knocked on the door of both of those thieves. Both of those thieves witnessed Christ's suffering without a whimper. Christ's suffering without a murmur. Christ's suffering without a word of complaint. He was knocking on the door of both hearts. But only one thief opened the door. And we only remember the thief on the cross. Because the greatest man who ever lived made the difference in his life. There are seven days in the week. For members of the church, one day stands out above all the others. Why? Because that day is special just as the day? No, not just as the day, but because there are certain things that occur on that day that do not occur on any other day of the week for faithful members of the spiritual remnant in the church today. Not members of the church of liberalism that try to clothe themselves sometimes with the phrase Church of Christ. But the spiritual remnant still holding on to the truth of the gospel of Christ. And so in an assembly like Panama Street, we do two things we don't do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. We partake of the Lord's Supper as we've just done. And we give of our means. It's not the day that's sacred, but the events that occur on this special day because of these special events. We pray and sing and we read and study the Bible and teach and preach, hopefully Monday through Saturday. But Jesus Christ, the greatest man who ever lived, makes the difference on Sunday because of these two events, especially the one that centers around the price he paid for man's sin. Common things. Then there's some weighty things. There are many churches in the world today, but there's only one you can read about in the Bible. Only one. When Peter made that great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said, upon that foundational truth, I will build my church. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. This kingdom is going to be established in the lifetime of some of you living. Mark 9, 1. He told those apostles to wait in Jerusalem. They would receive power from on high. When they received this power, they were to preach repentance and remission of sins in the name of this resurrected Christ. Luke 24, 45 to 49. In Acts 1 in verse 8, he said, you go to receive this power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And Acts 2 opens up with the Holy Spirit endowing these 12 men with this great power. They stood up on that occasion and after they answered the 
chaos and confusion in the minds of those people by pointing to the fact that they were not under the influence of wine. But more importantly, this is what Joel said would occur. And then led by Peter, the Holy Spirit preached the first consummated gospel sermon in the name of the resurrected Christ under the Great Commission as an accomplished fact. The death that bear the resurrection of Christ. When he mentioned the resurrection, he quoted from David because he knew those people needed book, chapter, and verse. And so the Holy Spirit delivered through Peter and those apostles, quoting from David of old, that Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead. They were pricked in their hearts, some 3,000, cried, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. They did that. And they were added to the church that Jesus said, I will build. This church has one founder. And that's the greatest man who ever lived on earth, Jesus Christ. I will build my church. It has one head. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church. Colossians 1, 18 and 19. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He is head of the church, the body. So in one text he says, the body which is the church, and in the next text, the church which is the body. Making no doubt as to who is the head of the church of Christ. That Jesus, as the founder said, I will build. He's the founder of it. He's the head of it. And he's the foundation of it. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul said, According as the grace of the Lord hath given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another man buildeth thereon, but take heed how ye build thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the founder of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the foundation of the church. He's the Savior of the church. Well, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5, 23, and that's the church. What makes the difference in the church you can see and read about in the Bible? In contrast to all of these humanly devised churches that men have built, that men have constructed, the greatest man who ever lived is the founder of it the head of it, the foundation of it, the savior of it. It's Jesus Christ always who makes the difference in everything. There are many plans of salvation that men have devised, but only one you can read about in the Bible. That one foundation is built upon one of the great themes of the New Testament. The answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Tragically, for two millenniums, man has been at war with the church that Jesus said, I will build and did build. The product of the gospel preached and the gospel obeyed. And they've been at war with God's plan of salvation that allows man to become a member of the church that Jesus said, I will build. With his sins forgiven and continually forgiven as he walks in the light of the gospel, 1 John 1, verse 7. That gospel must be heard. 
When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear what, Peter? The word of the gospel. And do what? Believe. Acts 15, 7. So we must hear the gospel before we can ever believe, fully believe, as the New Testament demands. Have the kind of faith that obeys. And then that faith expresses itself in repentance. Because if we don't repent, we shall perish, Luke 13, 3. And God commands every man to repent, Acts 17, 30. And then we confess the name of the greatest man who ever lived on earth. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10, 10. And then we do something that only a diminutive number of men and women have done since Pentecost of Acts 2. We express our faith in the consummated act of gospel obedience, water baptism for the remission of sins. Because Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. And we must repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Acts 2, 38. And that's what Saul among others did. He was told to arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Acts 22, 16. For six centuries, denominationalism has waged war against this simple condition of the gospel. Not realizing that they have positioned themselves between their salvation and the blood of Christ. They have erected this ungodly, horrifically wicked concept of salvation by faith alone and multiplied millions upon multiplied millions have entered eternity without God, without Christ, and without hope because they have been deceived by a perverted gospel and believe to their death's day that baptism is just something you do to show you're already saved and has no relationship to salvation. These denominational preachers and leaders have no idea what they have done to the world. And they continue to this day and no doubt will until time ends preaching this false doctrine that will cost multiplied millions their souls. Who makes the difference in this simple, from a human standpoint, ridiculous, lowering someone into the water and bringing them up out of the water? How many people have been ducked under the water, immersed under the water over the years for all kinds of reasons? In frivolity, connected with fun and merriment. What's the difference in those immersions? And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Who makes the difference in this simple, simple act of faith being lowered into water and resurrected from the water by human hands? Who makes the difference? The greatest man who ever lived 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are many patterns of worship that have been devised over the years. Efforts to approach God, but there's only one in the Bible. The Bible, the New Testament, mentions three kinds of false worship. Ignorant worship, Acts 17. Will worship, Colossians 2. That's worship that comes out of a man's own will, as opposed to the will of God. It's man's will contrasted with God's will. It's man's will usurping God's will. It's man's way. Supplanting God's way. Then there's vain worship of which the first two are a part. Ignorant worship is vain worship. Will worship is vain worship. And then Matthew 15, 9 talks about vain worship that is based on commandments of men instead of commandments of God. And Montgomery is, well, as every city, surely throughout America, where denominationalism exists, and all over the world, there are people coming endeavoring to come into the presence of God with worship that is vain. John 4.24 says that God is a spirit and we must worship God in spirit and in truth. What's the difference in that worship and the worship of Acts 17, Colossians 2 and Matthew 15.9? What's the difference in that worship that goes on here at Panama Street and other faithful congregations all over the world, and what's going on in all of these denominational churches all over Montgomery and all over the world. What's the difference? And who makes that difference? The difference is, and has always been, and always will be, because the greatest man who ever lived formalized this worship pattern. And he's the center of it and the focus of it. And the basis of it, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The home is a divine institution. God established the home for man's happiness and well-being. Consider the homes that have been torn about by strife. There's nothing more tragic than to view through the mind's eye and contemplate the homes in Montgomery, Alabama, the state of Alabama, all the states in the United States and all over the world that are living in constant, unending strife, arguments, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, oftentimes physical abuse. Almost every day in the Montgomery Advertiser, you open up and you read about homes that have not been established according to God's design. They are fake homes because the man and woman living there have never been married and they don't plan to be married. And they have borne illegitimate children and they're living in constant strife. And the advertiser is constantly talking about one mate or the other mate abusing that mate, abusing the children, sometimes to the point of death. The landscape is littered with such homes. Consider the homes where love, peace, and joy reign, where mama loves daddy, daddy loves mama. Mama and daddy love the children, and the children love mama and daddy. Mm. 
joy and happiness echo throughout the house. Laughter, peace, and joy saturate the home. Who makes the difference? Jesus Christ, the greatest man who ever lived, the Son of God, lives in that home. Consider the vast difference in individuals. There are people whose lives are devoted to sin. They love sin. That's the reason they live in it. They love it. They love the pleasure that sin brings. Their thoughts and actions are vile and corrupt. There are others that are morally good, but the whole of their being, the whole of their life, everything about them is devoted to material things. That's all they think about. Another day, another day to make more money to buy more things, more stuff. Then there are Christians, members of the church that Jesus said, I will build and did build. Their focus of life is God, truth, and right. They live in constant hope of going to heaven. Who makes the difference in these homes? What is the difference? Jesus, greatest man who ever lived, the Son of God. As a missionary finished preaching in a marketplace in one of the villages of northern India, a follower of Muhammad said to him, quote, You must admit that we have one thing you do not have, and it is better than anything you have. What is that? This gospel preacher asked. The answer, when we go to Mecca, we at least find a coffin. But when you Christians go to Jerusalem, you're Mecca, you find nothing but an empty tomb. The missionary smiled and said, that is just the difference. Muhammad is dead and in his coffin, just like all false prophets. But Jesus Christ is risen and all power in heaven and earth have been given to him. He is alive forever the greatest man who ever lived on earth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you've not obeyed the gospel of Christ, you need by faith, repent of your sins, confess Christ, be baptized into Christ. If you've done that, you straight away, you need to come home in penitence, confession, and prayer. And you need to do that right now while we stand and sing. If you give your heart to Jesus, He will make it white as snow. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come today. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, Come to Jesus, come, come today. Come to Jesus, do not tarry. Enter in at mercy's game. Oh, delay not till the morrow, lest thy coming be too late. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus.
come to Jesus, come today. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come, come today. Come to Jesus, dying sinner, other Savior there is none. He will share with you his glory when your pilgrimage is done. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come today. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, Come to Jesus, come, come today.